Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sunny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. I'm very pleased to be joined today by James White. Now, James White is the head of restoration at Arrow Films, uh, where he's been since 2014. His background of 25 years in the film industry has included working at film archives, post-production facilities, and film distributors in the U.S., Sweden, and the U.K., uh, but his primary focus has been on film restoration for the past two decades. And I'm very excited to have him on because I find film restoration to be a really interesting and underappreciated problem in the, the world of home video. I think a lot of people don't quite understand what it entails. And my understanding is that you worked on uh, one of the first Aero discs I actually picked up, was, which was Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which I've, I'm holding in front of him. You can't see it on the podcast, but I'm, I'm holding in front of him just to prove it. Um, I, uh, I, 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 I love how this movie looks. It looks like I imagined it would have looked in the theaters uh, you know, rolling off of a, you know, 35 millimeter print or whatever, uh, you know, as it as it would have back in the day. Um, tell me a little bit about the restoration of that film in particular. And then we'll, we'll get into a more general uh, conversation about what restoration entails, what what sort of elements you guys are looking for when you're trying to figure out, uh, you know, how to how to make something pop and look new again. Sure. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Um Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Wow. I mean, it was an early uh, title. Uh, I don't think it was, it wasn't my first title for Arrow. I think that was uh, uh, my first proper restoration for them was their Zombie Flesh Eaters, or otherwise known as Zombie, the Lucia Fulci film, which uh, we did a restoration on back in 2013, 2014. But it, it was certainly one of the early ones. And Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia uh, was a big film for me because I am a huge Peckinpah fan. I've always loved his films. A uh, huge fan of Wild Bunch, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Straw Dogs. But I love Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia because it's like Peckinpah's last final nihilist masterpiece. You know, it just goes all out. It's super, super dark in a way that 70s cinema could be that we just don't see anymore. And Warren Oates, one of my all-time favorite actors. Um, so, yeah, I was, it was a dream come true to work on that one for me. Um, with regards to the restoration, I mean, this is one of the problems when you're dealing with a film where pretty much everybody's dead who was involved in the film. So you've got Sam Peckinpah's dead, the cinematographer's dead. Obviously, Warren Oates is no longer with us. So you're basically relying on prior uh, prints and editions of the film to kind of guide you to how it should look. So with regards to the color of the film, the look of the film, these are things where all our cues had to be from primary sources from the time, but not having the talent at our disposal to, to guide us there. Mm -hmm. um, so with uh, a film like this, uh, and with most films, really, we go through the same process. We're trying to go from the best material possible. And in the case of Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, we wanted to go from the original 35 mil negative. That's the camera negative, the actual film that went through the camera when they shot every shoot, every, uh, every shot in the film. Um, so luckily, we were able to access that material from MGM, who holds all the original materials. Uh, we scanned a high resolution, I believe we did a 4K scan on that. Uh, and then we took that scan, we put it through the processes of restoration, grading, conform. By conform, I mean we're uh, cutting it uh, to match with the original, we're, uh, we're syncing it up with the audio, we're doing all those things to make sure that every frame is accounted for correctly. Um, we, uh, the color grading means we're taking every shot in the film individually uh, through a grading theater and grading the uh, the uh, the, re the um, saturation, the color, the hue, the contrast, the brightness, all those aspects that go into what creates the color image. Um, and with regard to restoration, uh, this was a film from, I want to say, 1974, 75. Uh, mm -hmm. It had uh, a few restoration issues. It had some color fluctuation. It had a lot of dirt, a few scratches here and there. Nothing, nothing tremendous. I mean, it was, certainly wasn't uh, we faced much worse before with films in much worse condition, but it, it required some loving care to try to make those things uh, more viewable. So what we do is we individually go through and use a combination of software, both automated and manual, frame by frame, 
to uh, to get that film back to its most pristine condition. And while we're doing that, and I think this feeds into what you were talking about in terms of its overall look and how you would uh, imagine seeing it from a print back when it first came out, is we, we don't let any of that uh, work affect the general texture of the film. So the film grain, the, the, mm-hmm. the texture of its original palette, all those things we want to continue to, to breathe in front of your eyes. We don't want to deter any of that. We don't want to um, uh, remove any of that because that's, that's the real essence of the movie right there. You know, it is a living, breathing, organic thing. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, it, it, we're doing all these things simultaneously, taking it through the restoration workflow. Uh, we're remastering the sound. Uh, that's the... Uh, basically only had English mono on that as per the original soundtrack. We didn't bother to do any kind of fancy new 5.1 or 7.1, certainly no Dolby Atmos mixes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. For a picture like Alfredo for Garcia, I don't think that would really be appropriate. Uh, But uh, but yeah, what we're essentially trying to do with a film like Bring Me Ahead for, for Alfredo Garcia or a more recent film like Tremors, or any of the films that we've done in recent years, True Romance, we just completed a new restoration of, uh, going back to films from the 60s or even the 50s that we've restored. Um, we're trying to do the best we can uh, using the best quality original film elements. That is, ideally, the film that went through the camera, if not the next best thing, and the uh, photochemical lab chain, so the interpause, interneg, generational loss going through from one element to the next. Um, and we're trying to create something that is the best and most accurate representation of that film in the way that it would have been seen upon its initial release. So we're not creating something new. Uh, I mean, we are, we're creating something in the digital domain, but that thing is supposed to be our closest neighbor to what was originally there. You know, since we're, Yeah, since those original prints that uh, were printed up in 75 or whenever are no longer of the pristine color and quality, they've all faded, they've all been nicked about there. And, no, you know, it's hard to watch a, a print being screened anywhere these days anyway. So this is our, 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 our best, um, uh, our best uh, uh, attempt to recapture that initial fresh struck from the neg kind yeah. of uh, situation. Let me let me ask a very basic question here. I, I I wonder what the actual mechanical process of scanning these films is like. Do you is there a uh, is there do you run it through a reel and it just kind of pick, I I like what is it what is the actual physical process of turning yeah. these you know actual physical frames of film into pristine you know high res four K digital images? Yeah, for sure. Um, a scanner is essentially well, I mean it's. <sighs> It's it's not that far off from any kind of image scanner when you're just scanning a document or something. You're basically making a copy of that image. But the thing with film is it's 24 frames a second. So you need to make a digital file for every single frame of that film. So film mm-hmm. is stored on reels. Usually a feature is between five and six reels, average length, 35 mil. Um, so every reel goes on a scanner, it's threaded through like a projector, and a gate holds the image in place for, you know, it could be a matter of seconds, it could be longer if it's a, a more uh, a specific process with wet gates or any kind of filtering involved. But the point is, is that a gate holds that image down while essentially the scanner scans it or photographs it, if you will. And that individual photograph becomes the file of that frame of film. So you can imagine how many files you have after you've scanned uh, a single reel of film, not to mention an entire feature. So these are, if you're talking 4K, you're talking, say, 4,096 pixels all the way across the 35 mil image. So that's a hell of a large file uh, to, to work with. And you're dealing with thousands of these per feature. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. It, but it's the best way to ensure since we're not working really in a photochemical domain anymore, you know, we're not using contact printers and all those kinds of things that we used to do uh, these kinds of uh, things with. Um, it's the best way to ensure that you're literally getting every single detail from that image onto a digital platform. 
you know, once you do that, if you have a decent 4K scan, well, then you can leave the film alone. It can go back on the shelf. It can be put in those humidity and temperature controlled uh, conditions. Uh, and, you know, hopefully won't be, you won't have a need to bother it for years and years to come because you already have uh, a decent digital master, which you can use for any number of platforms, any number of outputs from that yeah. starting point. Are we? This may this may be speculation. Feel free not to speculate if you don't want to. But are we are we kind of at the end of the line in terms of image quality at 4K? I, I remember reading somewhere that 4K is about it captures basically all of the information from from a frame of film. I mean, but we we there are 8K TVs. We have the we have the capacity to keep getting more and more Ks. Uh, yes, and I, yeah. I <laughs> and there's and I mean IMAX was always something between say you know six and eight K anyway to begin with. It's just, it it really comes down to the gauge of the film. I don't really see for a film like Alfredo Garcia. I can't see you getting that much more detail out of the negative than what 4K offers. I mean, it's it's impossible to quantify. You're trying to sort of equate uh, film grain, film detail, which is sort of organic in nature, uh, to pixels. So it's not an exact science, but there is the mm -hmm. idea that you're, the human eye is just not going to see much more detail from that from that point. But you know, it, it's the science is is fluid and it keeps moving forward. Um, we certainly, I mean, I remember I was told years ago. I said, "Well, you know, HD. What do you need beyond that? You know, we can throw the <laughs> film away. You know, it looks fantastic." Yeah. Of course, we know that's not the case anymore. So I'm, I, I'm hesitant to say this is as far as we should go. I would say that for the majority of say 20th century studio cinema, the kind of cinema that we think about first, probably when it comes to um, Hollywood cinema, the classic period and everything. You know, if, if, if you have, if you're talking about a film that was shot, say, in 70 millimeter, you know, a Lawrence of Arabia or something like that, then sure, those extra pixels that an 8K scan uh, provides you would be used to, their, to that advantage. But for something that's just 35 mil, an Academy mm -hmm. image, you know, for a black and white or uh, uh, Eastman color film, I can't see that much advantage going beyond that at this point. But, you know, they, uh, never say never. Um, I, I do yeah. think that the the uses, the potential uses for things like um, 8K and stuff are, if they're going to be used in an environment where, uh, where restoration of 35 mil type features would benefit, I could see, say, the, uh, the three strip Technicolor separate, uh, the separate layers in that and, uh, and getting as much possible information out of each layer. So when you can join those layers seamlessly, it'll provide you with a little more malleability to make that work with the extra. But these are, you know, it's all speculation. I think that yeah. having these tools at our disposal, because restoration tools get better and better each year, the choices get better, the solutions, people constantly coming up with new ways to approach these kinds of problems. Um, is uh, you know is is ongoing, so yeah, I mm -hmm. think it's uh, it's best to keep an open mind about these things. But yeah, uh, sure. I'm, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not on the hunt for an 8K TV yet. I'll tell you that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that's that's the thing, right? Is you know uh, how many people even have 4K sets yet? Yeah. And yeah. and how much 4K material is actually out there? It's not it's I, not a ton. Um, yeah. But Arrow has been putting out some very good 4K uh, sets, and I, I, I uh, to get back to the the question of restoration. So all right, so you you run you run the film through the scanner, and you look at it, and you say, okay, this is you know we've got a scratch and frame, you know. Know, 3086 or however you guys you know yeah. def define the frames what is what is the actual process then like of going through and kind of fixing the image i mean is it just all on computers and you kind of put well, it, it is. pixel by pixel or yes in, in a sense i mean it depends on the type of there's different kinds of damage to look for if you're talking about film scratches well there's the kind that you see on old prints that are running horizontally down for, say, a number of frames, if not a number of minutes. Uh, those are very difficult to, uh, to uh, repair and remove completely because they're going through moving areas on the film. The, 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 the shots may move like this. You sure. may have characters walking around through the scratches. All those kinds of things play a role. If, you're, if you have a scratch like that, you're going to want to hope that it's happening over, say, a background that's not moving. 
you know, so it'll be a lot easier to fix. But there's other kinds of scratches that are just single frame scratches, scuff marks, um, fingerprints, uh, dirt, just debris, uh, what we call sparkle. Um, there is, I think I brought this. What up is sparkle? Kind of, what is sparkle? What is, what is sparkle? <laughs> well, it's just, it's, it's, it's frame specific dirt. So think of it like snowflakes on a frame, you know, it's okay. just, uh, yeah, just, just dirt that isn't repeated from frame to frame in the same place. So when okay. it, when it appears on frame, it'll be more like rather than just sitting there annoyingly like a fly sitting on your TV for, you know, okay. ages. Yeah. Um, but there's density fluctuation, which uh, is a fancy way of saying flicker, which is when you can see the image sort of fading frame by frame. It kind of gives a kind of flicker strobing effect. That's because the density in the, in the material has broken down and been diluted through use and, and uh, just become a, something that is inconsistent from frame to frame. And sometimes that's down to the way it's stored. And sometimes the density, because film might be stacked up horizontally rather than flat, and the materials actually kind of shed over time. Mm -hmm. um, it could be because of exposure to heat or light or any of those kinds of factors. Um, when you get a piece of film that's, say, 50, 60, 70 years old, you have no idea everything it went through and the kind of trauma that it might have been exposed to. So you're opening up a real can of worms of questions that a lot of them may never get answered. But it's still up to you to try to meet those challenges and do the best you can to try to remove those uh, effects of age and wear and tear that it acquired over years. Um, so yeah, flicker, uh, uh, warping, there's actual physical warping and shrinkage of the image in the can. Um, these things can be, uh, these things can be fixable to a degree, but sometimes you can only go so far. So when that happens, we're usually pretty upfront about the limitations of what res our restorations can do, you know, and we just basically say, well, this is the best we could do with hmm. the, the time frame, the budget, the limitations of the source material. We do the best we can, but there's always limits to what the film material will allow or what our time frames and budgets will allow. I mean, the thing is, we're, uh, we're at, we at Arrow Films, like the Criterion Collection or Shout Factory or Kino Lorber, we are um, film distributors that license these titles through, say, the studios or other licensors who give us the ability, uh, give us the rights to distribute these films for a period of time. Um, and if we deem it necessary to create a new master of that film, restore a new master, go through the whole process I just, I just explained, um, then obviously, you know, we, we need it to work within our budgets and what we've, you know, uh, what we set out to, to make this an, a good investment on our part. But we're mm -hmm. doing it because we love the film, because we believe in the film, because we want to give it the best presentation possible. Um, if Warner Brothers, for instance, wants to restore Casablanca for the 50th time, then they can probably throw as much money and time as possibly as they want. They own that film yeah. in perpetuity worldwide forever. So, you know, sure. it's it, it, that's a good investment for them. Whereas if we were to license Casablanca, which they would never allow because they're never going to let that film go. But if they, if they were, then, you know, uh, and we wanted to restore it ourselves – and I don't see that happening. But if, if it did, then obviously there would be limitations to what we could do as an independent licensor. So, yeah, sure. it, it, there's an economic well, factor included there. Well, let me ask. Let me ask, you know, I, without specifically talking about any specific movie, what would you estimate the cost of a, a restoration of a not terribly damaged two-hour film? To, to run. I mean, I, I, I'm just, because yeah, people, well, this is, sure. I, I ask this because people complain about the cost of yeah. these movies. They say, oh, it's so expensive. I, I'm not, I can't, but it, it is, it's a time intensive and cost intensive process to make it look as good as they do. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is anybody who's looking at that finished product, that's all they're seeing. They're not seeing what we started with. We're not seeing the challenges that they're only seeing what was left, you know, what, what we've, what we finished as. So, you know, they're, you know, I, I'm, I'm open to any criticisms of any work that we've done, but I would argue that you really have to see where we started to have a full idea of, of what we were able to accomplish. As far as costs, it can really vary because it really depends on, um, 
the nature of how the film was treated, um, what the original materials were that we were able to source, whether we're going 4K, 2K, obviously uh, plays a real role there, and whether we're going 4K, 2K for the purposes of finishing up in 2K, 4K is another factor. I think a lot of people get confused when they talk about scans versus restorations, because I hear this term thrown around on forum boards all the time and things where people go, uh, well, why didn't they re release it in uh, as a UHD 4K release? Because they have a 4K scan. It's like, well, yeah, okay, we do. But a 4K scan is 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 just a scan. It is just the initial point of a restoration where you're transferring a film element to digital files and not doing any work on it. So a raw scan is not going to be something that's releasable. You only make it releasable by taking it through the process of grading, restoring and all the other bits and pieces that go into a restoration workflow to make it releasable, to make it ready, to make it restored. So you might be talking about a 4K scan that set you back, say, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Um, mm -hmm. And then the restoration work, which could be twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on top of that. You know, so it's, you know, it's, it really varies. And I'm not quoting yeah. exact figures here and I'm not, I'm not using any particular film as a, as a, uh, uh, as a model here because they, they vary significantly, but it, uh, you know, any label like us is going to work with, uh, dedicated labs that give preferential rates to allow us to do what we want to do within certain economic, you know, barriers. So yeah, it's, yeah. uh, it, 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 I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't argue the point of, well, we didn't do this cause we couldn't afford it. I mean, it's, it's the point of that any restoration really is going to reach its limit, you know, as per what the material will allow. So, yeah. Uh, let me, well, I, I, I want to, I, I just want to ask a, a, a kind of follow up question there about the 2K versus 4K mm -hmm. disc. So if you, if you have the, you have the 4K scan and you, do, you do the restoration in 4K. Mm-hmm. Is that is that then why would you not release it as a UHD disc? I mean, I'm just I, I, I the, yeah, I, there have been very few cases where we've done that. I think that the majority of titles that we as Arrow have released on Blu-ray, at least up until this year, were completed in 2K only. So whereas okay. the 4K, I think this got confusing uh, for me, too, because I, you know, I think the the vernacular changes quite rapidly. Um, but the the idea that, that 4K films that were just scanned in 4K but restored in 2K were still being marketed or promoted as 4K restorations, and okay. I think that I think that's possible that we were guilty of that a couple of times. I mean, I wouldn't have been involved in that decision, but I think that um, many distributors kind of fell into that trap of promoting 4K because it's the fancy new term to advertise and calling things 4K restorations when really that work wasn't completed in 4K. Um, I would okay. say the majority of films that we're restoring now uh, in I mean, anything we're scanning in 4K, the majority of those we're, do, we're doing 4K restorations because we're in the 4K UHD market now and we're releasing titles in that resolution. But it would make zero economic sense for us to scan and restore and complete a whole project in 4K just and just release it on Blu-ray. It'd be a tremendous waste okay. of money. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, that, that all makes sense. That all makes sense. Um, uh, so let me see. Uh, I, there's, there, there, I often see arguments about color timing, uh, in, mm. in the world of, you know, the AV boards and, and everywhere else. Um, and this, this came up like most recently it came up with the Lord of the Rings. I mentioned this in our, in our email, but it came up with the Lord of the Rings. There was a difference between the, the film prints the DVD extended editions, the Blu-rays, and now the 4Ks. And it, it's, it, I'm not going to ask you to talk about that because you didn't, I, I assume you didn't work on that one. But, they, but, the, but the, the, the yeah. question here is a very interesting one because the, the final film that people see is not what was shot 
on. It's not like the the there was a you know orange filter um, that Peter Jackson dropped down uh, on on you know the 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 planes of battle in in uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Like the the whole color timing process, I think, is un, underappreciated and kind of unknown by your average film uh, lover. Could you talk a little bit about what the what the color timing? processes like and you you know you mentioned seeing it in a color timing theater seeing seeing these movies in color timing theaters and kind of figuring out with the the original uh, cinematographer and director like hey what 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 is this supposed to look like what did you want it to look like um mm-hmm. and how that kind of influences the final product yeah sure i mean first of all yes i i didn't work on lord of the rings peter jackson is going to do what peter jackson wants and you know he doesn't give a damn what i think or probably anybody else so it's <laughs> it's it's his his baby that he like george lucas feels compelled to alter one way or the other every few years uh, depending on yeah. whatever flashy new format comes along so that being said we during restorations, we do like to, whenever possible, involve the filmmaker. Uh, sometimes the director and the director of photography both sit in uh, and uh, and supervise the grading process uh, because we really want their approval. We want the restorations we do to be the definitive presentations of those films. And what better source are you going to get than the people who made the film to say how it should look? Now, that's not a hard and steadfast rule. That's a guiding principle. Because as you can imagine, and this feeds into the controversy you're talking about, sometimes you do find directors who want to change their work, uh, who want to fix or upgrade things, feel that they were never happy with, or that they feel could be improved, maybe with a kind of newer kind of look to the We generally, as a rule, kind of argue vehemently against this, you know, because it's it's kind of it's a difference in philosophy, but I don't think that's what restoration is for. I think restoration mm-hmm. is to not invent something new. It's to um, do the best you can to present the film as it was originally made. I think we have a historical responsibility to do that. I think that it's you know. I, well, you get into this sometimes with some filmmakers, and if it's clear that they want to invent something new, then we have on occasion proposed, it's like, okay, well, that's great. Let's do that. But let's do that in addition to restoring the film as it was. So what we'll do is we'll present both versions. And this would be to the benefit of film students and film fans and everything. And so you can, so they'll be able to see sort of the, the artistic process you went through as a director and your changing vision of the film. You know, if I was doing something with Michael Mann, for instance, who is uh, <laughs> certainly well known for changing the look of his films years after the fact, I would propose that, you know, as a solution, because I probably know before even getting into it, that that's what he's going to want to do is change his film and update things and change things in whatever ways he's decided are better. Um, I We haven't, you know, sometimes we've lost that argument. And uh, that's been beyond our control. And I think other labels like Criterion, I know, have suffered from this same situation where you, you know, you can't go against the director's wishes, but you really wish that you could uh, present the film exactly as it was, in, you know, originally made. I think that um, in general, and I think most filmmakers kind of understand and appreciate this, is... Um, I don't think any one person owns the film. I don't think a director is the owner of that film. I think that once a film is released, it becomes a part of history. And I think that our responsibility is to that history rather than, you know, the the, the new whims or ideas of uh, the, the, uh, the creators. Um, I think that's something else. And to use a, a not so you know, uh, a kind, I don't know if it's a nasty term, but it certainly uh, gets a lot of blood boiling is revisionism. When you're actively mm-hmm. working to change something that people are familiar with to something new. And, and I, I think it's our responsibility to fight against that just because film students, people wanting to see these films and learn about these films, um, you know, should be given the ability to see the films that made them famous in the first place. Or not so famous. I yeah. mean, even though these films are lesser known, they should be able to see them how they were originally released. I mean, I remember seeing Star Wars in 1977 with my dad 
when it first showed. Now, I don't remember what it looked like, but I remember the film itself, and I remember what a big deal that was for me. And I'm sure it's just a big deal for people coming to it now and seeing those versions that Lucas has altered forever in whatever new mm-hmm. ways he thought suit. But I think it's it's a shame that we don't have that historical document that was the initial release available so people can see those changes, so people can see what set the template, you know. So, yeah. so yeah, I, I think we've we've had a few uh, wins and losses as far as the color time of war in general. Though I think as a as as a ninety nine percent of the time, uh, when we approach color grading, we are if we're working with the director, the DOP, or we they aren't available. We're just using the best references we can use. We are very conscious of trying to achieve just that, just trying to. Um, to do right by the original color spectrum, the original uh, grading, the original contrast, the all the all the rest of that, to uh, to keep within the spirit of the original film, because if we're not doing that, um, then I, I just I feel like we're creating something else. Mm, yeah. Uh, no, I mean that. I think that this is also my personal philosophy. So I'm oh, glad. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad we agree. You share. Okay. <laughs> you know, <I'm> glad. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that's. I think that's totally right. I mean, I would. I would. Uh, I swear I would never buy another Star Wars set since I own it on VHS and DVD. <laughs> yeah. But if if Disney were to one day be like, all right, putting them all, we're putting all the versions out there. Uh, you know, I would probably have to. I'd probably have to crack the the wallet open again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, just I, to, I just to get that first one. Yeah, I agree, and I, I definitely I'd uh, I'd pony up for one if they uh, if they chose to go back and release those in the right way. Well, we'll see. Yeah. It could happen. Could happen. Yeah. Do you? Can I ask what it's like to work with the the actual directors and directors of photography on these on these projects when you're sitting there in the in the theater with them? What are what are what are their reactions like to seeing the you know the 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 film that they worked on so hard and for so long? And I know sometimes like don't go back and revisit for years and years yeah. uh, on 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 a screen with them. No, I think it's it's fantastic yeah, for the most part. I mean, as you can imagine, <laughs> like everyone else, uh, we've all had to work remotely over the last year and a half. <laughs> so I've uh, one the part of my job that I've missed the most has been sitting in there with the director and the, the DOP and the other talent to uh, to work collaboratively to uh, to to realize these restorations together. Um, we have worked remotely, which it doesn't hold the same magic, but it's still a form of collaboration. And it just means sending files back and forth and hope that we're all watching it on a similarly calibrated system so we can all be confident we're seeing the same thing. Uh, we did that with Tremors, with Ron Underwood, which was terrific. It was a great experience. And he was uh, amazingly supportive of what we were trying to do and really pleased with the end results. So a great experience. Um, we can... Um, I think you have to th- have to you know um, have to have to feel like the the director the DOP they probably haven't seen these films on anything other than a DVD or maybe a Blu-ray for years and years. So to go back and see the original film captured beautiful 4K image and it's all its resolution and everything went through that camera, and to have the ability to go and grade it once more to review it to see all those shots anew is you know a great is is something they really want to do. And they're, uh, for the most part, really pleased that we're asking them to participate. You know, um, I think that for the for the vast majority of directors, it's been a really um, pleasant experience. I think uh, working with them obviously is is a great treat and an honor and a privilege. But just them being asked, they they're uh, amazingly uh, uh, grateful and uh, and excited by the possibilities of it. So that's great to see. It's also a fantastic way to learn more about a film than you ever would otherwise, because you're hearing a DVD commentary, essentially, you know, throughout the entire process, which could take, you know, yeah. weeks. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're learning what went wrong with that shot, when, you know, why this actor was cast instead of somebody else, why, you know, all the backroom gossip of what happened here or why this was never worked this effect to never work the way they wanted it to. I mean, we've worked with uh, some directors more than once. We've restored three films with Terry Gilliam, uh, 
who we're fortunate is local to London. So he's very easy to, mm-hmm. uh, to work with without worrying about traveling and everything else. And he is fantastic. We restored Time Bandits, 12 Monkeys, and uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And all three times, he's just been an absolute treat to work with. But he himself is, you know, he's, he's humble. He points out the hilarity of some mistakes that he made that never worked. Um, there's a point in Time Bandits, if I recall, uh, midway through, I don't know how well you know the film, but in the whole kind of um, Robin Hood sequence of the film. And mm-hmm. you've got a point where they're, the, the Time Bandits and the boy are going back through the time portal or they're looking for the time portal. It's, it's Sherwood Forest and it's nighttime. And they come across the portal and there's smoke all around the portal. But what looking at this film with a new 4k scan uh from the negative um what terry never noticed before is the the guy operating the smoke machine is standing right in the center of the shot clear as down <laughs> <laughs> and uh and he said and he just you know leapt out of his chair he goes oh my effing god you know i've never seen that before <laughs> how did that get past us you know and uh, part of the reason oh, for crazy. that is they were looking at dailies which were run on prints and they were never looking at it sure. with this kind of critical detail before so uh so yeah it pops up a lot of surprises and for the record we never fixed that we just let Left it in, you know. It, it's oh, that's it, it's there in the blue. That's amazing. Yeah, and and our I, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I no, I love I love Time Bandits. It's literally. It's, I'm glad you mentioned it. Time Bandits is literally the first movie I can remember watching. It's, oh wow! Uh, okay, it's like my earliest film memory, uh, and I remember that scene. I have I have obviously never uh, seen that that specific little little uh, <laughs> detail before. But I do. I actually I own the Criterion. Uh, well, no, that's fine. Does, if you sorry. look in the Criterion booklet, they used our master. So it's the same. Okay. It's the, okay. I mean, they might have some different extras. I'm not sure, but Lee Klein criterion, we're all friends. You know, I think there's this idea okay. that we're they're all that, that all of the, these labels are in, uh, you know, hardcore, uh, con- punk competition with each other. No, actually we're, we're all friends. You know, we all socialize. We're all we're well, friendly. Well, I did, I did, I did know that you, uh, that the company sometimes shared, uh, masters and transfers. Can we talk about that just a little bit? Because I'm, yeah. I'm kind of curious, is it, is it just a function of who has rights to distribute in which territory or? Yeah, generally. Uh, uh I mean, for instance, Time Bandits is it, and, uh, the rest of the Handway titles such as, uh, Long Good Friday, Mona Lisa, uh, With Nail and I, those types of films. Uh, those were all licensed to us from a company called Handway Films, which is the original company that made those, distributed those features mm-hmm. in Britain and they had made a separate license agreement with Criterion in the States same thing they had the rights for the States we had the rights for the UK um, but it makes no sense for us all to be restoring the same material going through the exact same workflow because Criterion we you know we work to the same standards um, all the all the, uh, the the talent for those films uh, is in Britain so if we wanted to work mm-hmm. with Terry Gilliam we had done we had already restored it. So, you know, Criterion made the decision and say, hey, why should we just do the same work over again? Can we just access your master? We'll work out some sort of deal. We could share extras. Maybe we'll pay a fee. Uh, yeah, that happens quite a bit, you know. Um, but in terms of, okay. uh, I mean, as you know, Arrow's a US as well as a UK label now. So the majority mm-hmm. of titles that we release, we try to license for both territories, U.S. and U.K., especially when it comes to 4K UHD, just because, well, the investment one has to make to pay for those restorations and the authoring costs and coding and everything else, replication for 4K can be kind of staggering. So we mm-hmm. want to be able to release that in as large uh, you know, audience base as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing I, you know, one thing I have not asked about at all, and I'm sure I've got uh, audio files screaming at me right now, is about sound. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I am not, I'm not a sound guy, so this is not like a, it's not a thing that I often think about. But I do want to talk a little bit about how you, how you restore sound. I mean, what what sort of elements are you using? Are you, is it just a function of going, you know? minute by minute through the through the soundtrack and taking out the pops and, and hisses. I like I understand on a kind of uh, basic level what film restoration looks like, but sound restoration is a total mystery to me. I don't Yeah. Well don't, it, it's it's actually in terms of capturing the detail, it's not that different. You're capturing a physical format such as 
uh, optical sound negative. Uh, in the case of the majority of, uh, of, of films in the last, say, 50, 70 years, uh, or magnetic reels, another way that audio was stored on magnetic reels. Um, you're going from a physical format like that to a digital file. And that material is, is captured, transferred. Uh, it's a slightly different process to get it transferred. But once you have it, you're putting it into sort of a Pro Tools kind of timeline environment. Um, you're syncing it up with the picture. Uh, usually that's not too much of a challenge unless the sound material you have is incomplete or not matching up somehow with the pictures you have because they're based on different cuts or materials missing from either source. It, it, depending on the type of film, it can be a challenge or it can be, you know, fairly easy. But in terms of the actual frame-by-frame -frame restoration, yeah, you're looking for those kinds of things that would bother the listener on viewing, the, uh, the signs of age or handling or damage, so pops, clicks, uh, audible hum or fuzz, that sort of thing. Uh, it's usually a combination of filtering um, as well as frame-specific kind of fixes, like getting rid of those kinds of unique events like pops and crackle and things like that. Um, but that's different from, say, creating a new sound mix. So mm -hmm. like picture, I feel like our main priority should be restoring the original sound. And if you're talking about the vast majority of films, say, up to the 1980s, you're talking about mono soundtracks generally. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a fairly simple thing. It's, it's usually one channel, uh, sometimes split into two sides, uh, and you're just trying to make the cleanest, but also preserving that kind of original ambiance. So there might be some sort of hiss in the background a little bit. There might be some sort of audible. That's kind of the analog warm sort of room tone that we want anyway. We don't want to make it sound too polished, too clean. That doesn't mean we will want a whole lot of pops and crackle and things like that, but we also don't want to remove the kind of essence. In a way, if you remove the, the natural ambiance of a mono recording from, say, 1972, then it's sort of the sound, it's kind of the, the, the same situation with picture if you're taking away film grain. You know, you're taking away the texture and the natural feel of how that film should sound. Now, once you do that, then you have a choice of creating new sound mixes, if it's called for. So, you know, in home video terms, that's meant converting stereo films to 5.1 and things like that. We don't get too much into that. Usually, if we're, if we're releasing something with 5.1, 7.1, that sort of, it's usually because we're, we're, we're licensing a studio title and the studio has already done that work for us. So it's there mm -hmm. for us. Like, I mean... Um, King of New York's an example of a film where we went back and we restored the original, uh, I believe the original mono or stereo. I might be mixing that up, but the point is, is that the 5.1 mix that is, that has always been there is awful. You know, it's terrible oh, really? quality uh, yeah. because it just wasn't made very well. I don't know who did it. It was a small, you know, uh, it was fairly independent film. I don't know whose job it was to make the 5.1 years ago for the DVD release before we even licensed it for, for Blu-ray um, years mm -hmm. ago. But whatever it is, it's there. And it's on our disc for people who want to listen to it. But I strongly recommend listening to the original soundtrack instead because the fidelity, the quality is just much better. And it much more, you know, in keeping with the original feel of the film. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I think sub-labels approach this different ways. Maybe they feel compelled to, to do big 7.1 or 5.1 soundtracks for everything. I've never really seen that. I don't understand why someone would want to say, you know, watch The Apartment, you know, the Billy Wilder film, 1960, with a 7.1 soundtrack. I just don't get that. It's just not no. me. Um, we've been asked a, a few times recently about Dolby Atmos, and that's something that we would probably explore if the film felt like it merited, like if it was a fairly recent film from the 90s maybe. So, you know, for, for us, that's fairly late. Um, you know, I, I think we'll approach it on a case by case basis and see what the what our expectations would be, what we could, ex uh, what the results might be. I don't know. I, I, I'm uh, I'm not in my comfort zone there because we haven't done that yet. Yeah. Well, I, but uh, but also applying a Dolby Atmos mix to a film from the 1990s 
uh, I mean, that would that would violate the idea of restoration, right? I mean, because that well, is not a thing that <laughs> yeah, I tried, existed. I mean, I you know it's you true. Know, I, but, I, I, I'm not yeah. I'm not trying to trip you up here. No, I'm just no, saying, no, Like it, it just feels weird. I suppose the same violation could be said for any five point one of a film that was originally stereo or anything else. Yeah. I mean, when we did the thing, for example, uh, I think two three years ago. Uh, no, probably more than that. Anyway, when we when we restored the thing, uh, we had the original stereo, uh, two track stereo, and we had the five point one that Universal had done for the DVD and prior Blu Ray releases. So those were there, but we also wanted to uh, to do its Dolby four channel stereo mix, which would have been distributed in some print for some theaters that had that kind of equipment where you could hear it that way. Mm -hmm. And that had never been put on video before. So we actively sought out that four channel mix as another original choice to watch it with. Um, I think that, you know, my idea about whether you're violating anything is, is, is more the fact that have we done our job first and foremost of releasing it as it was originally released. If we've done that, then everything else is just a bonus. You know, so tacking on a 5.1 or a 7.1 or a Dolby Atmos or whatever is just, you know, it's, it's something in addition that fans can watch mm-hmm. if they choose to or if they want to just watch it in mono. You know, same thing happened with American Werewolf in London. Is uh, It had been released as, I think, in both its stereo and 5.1 mixes before, but it's... Um, Mono mix had never properly been remastered and synced before, so we made it made a real effort to do that with our release, and that's my preferred way to listen to it as well. Yeah, oh, interesting. You 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 mentioned film grain, and that's going to be the last thing I want to I want to bring up <laughs> okay. here because uh, we're yeah. Um, but the there is often I remember when Blu-ray was first kind of you know be, it was becoming the standard format, and 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 some of the first original Criterion uh, releases came out, and people were like, oh, this looks like there's flies swarming all over it. I can't I can't watch it. There's too much grain. And I never, I've never really understood that because I always thought that was kind of the point was to to see all of that. But do you do you get that sort of pushback from folks still? Is it an issue with 4K where you get so much more information? I mean, I, I'm I'm curious what the what the state of that argument is like right now. Uh, yeah, well, first I should just say, um, well, all film grain is not equal. Uh, you shoot on different gauges, different uh, 16 versus 35. A 16 mil film uh, shot in that format is going mm-hmm. to have much more pronounced, uh, larger seeming grain. Likewise, a film shot on 35 is going to appear more and more sure. actively grainy the further you go down the printing chain. So from original neg to a interpause to an interneg, to color reversal interneg, Dubnik, anything down the printing chain is a generational loss, and therefore the grain becomes more active and pronounced. Um, but it also has a lot to do with people's expectations and how what they feel a film should look like. And that really varies from film to film and the way that a film was made, um, not just its gauge, but its production, its lighting, its the film, uh, uh, the type of film stocks they used. Um, and the era in which the film is made as well, under what conditions, uh, budgets. In general, though, as I think I said, I mean, I, I approach film grain, I consider it the living, breathing texture of what a film should look like. And I would say that if you don't like film grain, then maybe you don't like film that much. You know, it's, it is what it is. And if you try to, rem- and the wonderful thing about Blu-ray and now UHD is we have the ability to kind of wallow in that texture and feel that texture, which, you know, we didn't really have with DVD and we certainly didn't have with VHS. Uh, we have it in the film screenings. We have it on, you know, if we're looking at a beautiful 35 mil print, uh, but this is the way we can have it at home. And I, I consider that a, a gift, you know, I mean, why take away the, it's like seeing a painting in the, in a museum, you know, you see the texture, you know, it's so different than a print, you know, on, you know, a, a reproduction that uh, if you can have that original texture, keep it. Um, but 
I would also say that I think a lot of people have their tellies set up wrong and that some of the said, you know, we can't really be responsible for that. We hope that when people are watching these things, that they're not watching it on some crazy out the box setting, which is geared more for live sports than watching sure. a film from, say, 1970. Uh, if they're not if they haven't set it up wrong and they just don't know any better, then, yeah, it's not going to look right. And it's probably going to look like bugs crawling over the wall. I, I can't really do much about that, except I hope they find the information they need on forum sites or wherever to correct for these oh. uh, these settings. Um, but Turn yeah, off I, your motion smoothing, people. Please. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really appreciate it when, uh, was it uh, after Mission Impossible 6 or something that they, uh, Tom Cruise, uh, they went and they tried to tell people on YouTube, like, please, this is don't watch films this way, take off this, yeah. you know, press it. I, my, my friend and colleague, David McKenzie, who does all the encoding for our 4K UHD releases, as well as a lot of our Blu-ray releases, he's uh, he's been the encoder author of most of the films we restored over the years uh, because he has this sensitivity to preserving the texture, giving it the best possible uh, reproduction on this new format as possible. Um, and, you know, I, I trust him with the work that we've done because the, it, it makes no sense if we are working on a restoration for three or four months and we've spent this money, we've worked with the filmmakers, we've created something that we view as definitive, as definitive as can be, then why would we kind of let ourselves down at the final hurdle when it goes to disc, you know? So compression, authoring, encoding, these are all parts of the, they don't really have much to do with restoration, but they are an absolutely essential part of delivering that restoration to your eyes and ears in the best way possible. Yeah. Uh, well, that was everything I had wanted to ask. I always like to end the show by asking um, my guests if there's anything I should have asked, if there's anything <laughs> I, I didn't know to ask that you think people should know about film restoration. Um, is there, is there any, is there anything I missed? Oh gosh. Well, I think you covered the, you know, the basic, I mean, we could probably get in the weeds on any of this stuff and go further in, but <laughs> you know, it, it's, <laughs> I don't want to bore your listeners too much. It's, it's safe to say that every film, you know, uh, throws, even though the workflow that I, that I kind of laid out my answer to bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia pretty much goes, uh, you know, is, is fairly standard and the workflow that we follow on the majority of our films, um, we work on such a wide range of films and we're faced with some really crazy challenges sometimes. And I think that people have to understand that this is, you know, uh, these are very old artifacts that were never made with the intention of being restored. You know, what we're doing is something that sort of goes above and beyond what its shelf life originally was intended. The very idea of preserving these things, film preservation is a fairly recent novel concept. So, uh, you know, we're learning as we go. And obviously yeah. we've made mistakes along the way, uh, but we're, we're doing the best we can uh, with the material that, that's there and, uh, and uh, with the tools we have. Cool. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, again, James White, uh, whose work at Arrow is highly recommended. If you uh, if you are a fan of physical media, you got to get some of these Arrow discs, folks. Um, they are they are very good. Uh, and I like I as I mentioned, the the, the first I, I picked up was Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which I actually had to buy a out of region. Blu-ray player four. I was like, I, I, it wasn't streaming anywhere. It wasn't on DVD uh, or it was like a hundred dollars for a DVD. I was like, well, I might as well just get the out of region Blu-ray player, you know, save myself a little bit of money really in the long run. I like that. <laughs> um, I like that thinking. And I feel, uh, <laughs> I, I feel it's very, I feel, uh, just absolutely, uh, you know, uh, proud and, and honored that you would debut that player with our, uh, bring me the head of our prayer Garcia <laughs> release. So well done. Thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, again, I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.